Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, August 10th. What a day in the professional tennis world. The ATP and WTA 1000 level action in Canada delivering the goods from start to finish. We had top seeds knocked off on the men's side. It starts with number one seed and world number one, Daniil Medvedev. He did not drop a set last week on his way to the Los Cabos title, yet he's out in his first match in Canada, knocked off by, in my opinion, the hottest player on the ATP tour right now, and arguably the guy who's had more success than anyone not named Novak Djokovic since the start of the grass court season. Of course, I'm referring to Nick Kyrgios, who once again went unbroken against world number one, Daniil Medvedev. If you aren't already, it's time to start considering Nick Kyrgios a top five contender to capture the title in New York. And I know we've talked so much about Kyrgios of late on this podcast. How can we not, given all of the success he's had on court? But I'll continue to make that case for him being a top five contender for the title here on today's show. Of course, Kyrgios wasn't the only one who delivered an upset. How about Tommy Paul? It's so funny. Certainly, After the Indian Wells title run this season, we figured of the 1997 Americans, Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, that Fritz was the guy of that class. Maybe last year after Montreal, when Opelka went on his run at this Masters event, I suppose it was in Toronto last year. You get my point, though. Maybe at that moment, you thought it was Opelka as the American with the highest upside. But as of late... Tommy Paul's looked better than all of them. And for TP today, maybe the win of his season, arguably one of the wins of his career, a three-set victory. He comes back from match point down to knock off Carlos Alcaraz. The tennis was stunning in this matchup between two of the best pound-for-pound athletes on the ATP Tour. And if you look for Tommy Paul, another guy we've talked about quite a bit of late, he's been at the very worst a top 25 guy since the start of the grass court season. And all of the things he did in spurts early in his career that had all of us thinking the former junior French Open champion could be a top 10 sort of guy on the ATP Tour in his career, all the individual pieces, they're starting to come together. And today he had it all on display against Carlos Alcaraz and certainly we'll get into that match and look at the rest of what was, again, a busy day on the men's side in Montreal. Other seeds knocked off in Rublev, Schwartzman, Dimitrov. We can talk about the mechanics behind those upsets, talk about the seeds who impressed on the day and so much more. Of course, this week we're blessed with two. 1,000 level events, the men's action happening in Montreal, the women's action happening over in Toronto. The day started with a bang, and it was Coco Golf who earned a three-set victory over Elena Rabakina that really set the tone for what was an extraordinary day of tennis across the board. For Goff, it's amazing how quickly it falls out of the stream of conscious thought, because why would you be thinking about the French Open at this point of the season? Certainly, we've got pretty much exclusively hardcourt action left. And yet you remember it was just two months ago where Coco Goff at 18 years old made her first Grand Slam final in Paris. And for Goff today, you know, the player she reminds me most of is Daniil Medvedev. And I want to explain why, why her performance today against Rabakina was downright Medvedevian at times. And just get into why it's always worth remembering the 18-year-old. She already is outstanding, but 
can she be a consistent top 10 player for the majority of the next decade with every match she plays? The answer gets closer and closer to being a definitive yes. But look, it wasn't just Goff, Rabakina. Yes, that set the tone on the day. Certainly, we can get into Belinda Bencic versus Serena Williams. The match, in my opinion, played pretty close to the script we expected, but the emotion following Serena's loss not only from Serena on court, but the love the crowd showed her, the love all of us felt watching on our TV screens. Going to be a lot of tears over the course of the next month as we watch her complete her prolific and Hall of Fame-worthy, dare I say, greatest of all-time career. But then, you know, some of the other players on the rise certainly made some noise. It's always a stark reminder whenever Iga Sviantek takes the court and does what she did against Alia Tamjanovic, just how good the young Polish player already is at this point of her career. And look, again, Ford Iga today, it was pretty easy picking. Iga advances one and two on the day. We can get into what was another cruise performance for her. But how about some of these matchups? Breathtaking. As we approach round number three, Sabalenka, Goff, and Sakari Pliskova, who was outstanding today in a straight set victory over Amanda Nisimova. We had a rare Garbine Muguruza victory today to set up a matchup with Belinda Bencic. Bianca Andreescu looking strong uh, as she looks to close out her match against Alize Cornet. Excuse me. Looks like that match is headed to a third set. Recording at 10.33 p.m. The reason I bring that up, a couple of the matches not finished yet. Andreescu versus Cornet, which I thought would be finished, but now is headed towards a third set. Also, Tsitsipas taking the court with Jack Draper right now. I hope you all forgive me for recording this podcast before those matches end. Feel like we saw enough of the day. We got 90% of the matches in. If something crazy happens tonight with Draper or with Andrescu, I will come back and record a mini updated, abridged version uh, for all of you listeners Thursday morning discussing those matches. But again, we'll get into all of the WTA results in Toronto as well. Set the scene for what will be a fun four days of action coming up in the tennis world. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here on this podcast is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point as well. And look, if you haven't heard already, we're going to be live with our friends at Tennis Point in Cincinnati. So excited to be co-hosting the college showcase event they have on Sunday. It starts noon Eastern time on Sunday. You'll get to see Michigan, Ohio State, Kentucky, countless other teams and team representatives competing throughout the course of the day in what should be a very, very fun event on the grounds of the Western Southern Open. We'll talk with some of the players, talk with some of the coaches, have a bunch of fun. If you're planning on coming to the event, come watch qualifying as well. I promise you the tennis is just as exciting. The grounds aren't quite as filled and it's just a more intimate setting to watch an extraordinary level of tennis. So be sure to come check us out and obviously always check out Tennis Point for your latest and greatest needs in the tennis world, whether it be shoes, rackets, strings, clothes, you name it. They've got all the best equipment at all of the best prices. Of course, you use our promo code CR15. When you make a purchase, you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point.com. The symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into the action happening north of the border. Let's start on the men's side. We did have our top two seeds knocked out of the men's singles draw. Was it shocking 
to see Nick Kyrgios defeat Daniil Medvedev? No. He's beaten him twice already in his career coming into today's match. And, you know, when they played earlier this season, a Daniil Medvedev four-set victory at the Australian Open, Kyrgios played him tight in all four sets. And seeing Kyrgios's level in that match, you can go back and check the tape of our January mini-break podcast. We forecasted if Kyrgios was going to be able to keep that sort of effort that sort of momentum, that sort of focus throughout the course of the season, you know, I said I thought he could continue to have this level of success because we've never seen Nick Kyrgios locked in for six consecutive months the way he has been from start to finish here in this 20, or from start to where we are, I should say, in this 2022 season. It starts with the serve, of course, for Nick Kyrgios. Today, he faced only two break points against Daniil Medvedev, able to fight both of them off. And, you know, again, what's so impressive about Nick Kyrgios? It's not just that he holds 95% of the time, not just that he hit ace, hits aces on 20% of the first serves that he lands in the court. 19.6% to be exact, but one out of every five serves Nick Kyrgios hits is an ace. That means he's getting at least one free point per game, uh, given the prominency of his, given the success rate of his serve. And, you know, again, he lands over two-thirds of his first serves. He's landing 67.9% of his first serves for the season. You look at the average of ATP players, it's 63.7 amongst the top 50. So not only is his first serve better than the majority of top 50 players, he lands that first serve more frequently than the majority of top 50 players. And he doesn't sacrifice, you know, consistency and power for double faulting. He double faults 4% of the time. That's 0.4% above two or average, but, you know, ranks 14th highest amongst top 50 players. That's not bad. That's fine, given the success, again, of his first serve, the success of his second serve as well. And it's just his game was perfectly suited to defeat Daniil Medvedev today. He did such an exceptional job of capitalizing on Medvedev's defensive positioning. And the number I would turn to, even beyond the service stats, he hit 12 aces, made 69% of his first serves, went 51 of 62 behind his first serves. He lost just 11 points on the first serve against someone who I think unanimously we would consider a top five returner, particularly on hard courts, if not better, in Daniil Medvedev. What did Kyrgios do particularly well? He served and volleyed. He took advantage of the space. If Medvedev was going to sit 12 feet behind the baseline, wait for that serve to slow down so that he could get a cleaner swing on it, Kyrgios was going to take the space available to him. Kyrgios was going to move forward to the net, and just given Medvedev's court positioning, it's so hard to find the, sh- the cross-court angle because you have to hit that ball, you know, keep it low enough that Kyrgios isn't able to cut it off early, but you also have to keep enough spin on it that it doesn't go fly, or, you know, that it gets... You have to get under it enough, excuse me, that it has to get above the net from that core position. That's just really difficult to do. And yeah, Medvedev could do it at times, but Kyrgios just kept attacking. He was relentless. And as good as Medvedev is, is pulling off those spectacular defensive shots when the predicate, when your success is predicated on pulling off spectacular defensive shots, I don't care who you are. That's an extraordinarily difficult game plan to execute. And again, credit to Kyrgios. 32 of 48, 32 of 48 at the net, won two-thirds of his 
attempts moving forward and half of his or excuse me a third of his victories uh in points came at the net so he wins you know a third of his points at the net you add another 12 points which he won with three points on the first serve you have to imagine there were another 10 first serves that weren't aces but went unreturned by Daniil Medvedev half of his points are won by unreturned first serves or points won at the net that's playing on your terms. And when you can play on your terms as successfully as Nick Kyrgios can, you can have success regardless of who the opponent is across from you. That's why Kyrgios has always been so fascinating because when he serves well, as we saw in Indian Wells this season, he can push Nadal to three sets. As we saw at Wimbledon, he can push Novak Djokovic. Was Djokovic probably always going to win that match? Yes, but Kyrgios kept it close from start to finish. And, you know, we've seen Kyrgios in his career, you know, have success against the Daniil Medvedevs of the world, have success against the Stefano Tsitsipas's of the world. That serve is just a nightmare to deal with. That's why, and I know I brought this up a couple of days ago, Mark Petschy was right. It is one of the top 10, maybe even top five individual best serves we've probably seen on the ATP Tour. Now, of course, players like Sampras, Becker, Roddick, even Izovich, they're all a Federer. They're all in the conversation But Nick Kyrgios is in that conversation as well. And, you know, the thing outside of moving forward and taking advantage of Daniil Medvedev's court position, which, again, is the thing he singularly did best today, 37 winners, only 12 of them coming as aces. So, again, 25 winners from the ground or net, 17 unforced errors, 13 of those unforced errors coming from the ground or at the net. It's just he's got some grinder in him. He's comfortable going backhand to backhand with a Daniil Medvedev even. That's how solid he is on that side. And if you provide him any pace to work with, any topspin to work with, now he's that much more comfortable driving through the ball. Of course, if you saw him set up the breakpoint chances in uh, set number three, it was based off of a couple of successful backhand short angle cross-court passes, which I think Kyrgios hits extraordinarily well. But again, what makes this Nick Kyrgios so different than previous Nick Kyrgios is. I know I've referred to this in the past, but you look at some of the matches that have gone three sets for him since the start of the grass court season. You know, he loses the first set to Nicolas Basilashvili in Stuttgart, immediately breaks him to start the second set, goes on 6-4, 6-3, and set, sets two and three. Against Tsitsipas and Hala, loses the first set 7-5, immediately breaks Tsitsipas to start the second set, 5-7-6-2-6-4 win for Kyrgios. You look at some of the other advan- uh, examples against Tsitsipas in Wimbledon drops the first set, immediately breaks Tsitsipas to start set number two against Medvedev today. Drops the first set 7-6, immediately breaks Medvedev with some fantastic defensive work, some on-the-slide forehand magic for Kyrgios to start set number two. For a guy who has always had mental hiccups, for a guy who when things get down early in his career, they would spiral away from him. Again, Basilashvili, Tsitsipas twice, now against Medvedev in Montreal. When he's facing adversity, he's coming out of the gates swinging. He's coming out of the gates focused. And we just haven't seen that Nick Kyrgios before. And of course, I mentioned it earlier, he's 29-7 and now uh, overall in singles this season, 18-4 and in doubles overall this season, Washington title, Atlanta title, Australian Open title in doubles, of course, the Washington title in singles as well. Who's been better than Nick Kyrgios overall this year? Rafa? Yes, for sure. Alcaraz at the start of the season? Absolutely. Has Sinner been more consistent? Yeah, Sinner played the clay court season, and even when he was injured at times, round of 16 at French Open, at least he produced something. But, like, 
again, outside of Djokovic and Nadal, I don't know if I mentioned Djokovic yet or Nadal, both of them obviously would be one and two on this list. Outside of those two, has anyone had a definitively better season than Nick Kyrgios, who again, 29 and seven, he's winning 80% of his matches this season. Here's the list of guys who are winning 80% of their matches this year. Nadal, Alcaraz, Djokovic, Sinner. There's your list. Now, again, if Zverev wasn't injured, would he maybe be in this conversation? Perhaps. But outside of Nadal and Djokovic, and probably Carlos Alcaraz because of just how freaking good he was to start the year and his clay court season, I mean, those three, fine. But I think you could argue Kyrgios Alcaraz, and I think definitively Nick Kyrgios is the part of the next conversation because he's been better than Andre Rublev, and he's probably been a well. Him and Daniil Medvedev, again, are in the conversation together. Him and Alex Zverev are in the conversation together. Him and Kasparud, who's played more events, he's probably at the tail end of that conversation as well. But Nick Kyrgios belongs with it. And again, unequivocally in my mind, you look at the stats, holding 95% of the time. And for him, breaking serve now, you know, 18.6% of the time, which is above his career average and actually ranks 42nd amongst top 50 players. He's typically ranked 49th or 50th right there with Opelka and Isner. He's not this season. And that's a testament to, okay, I dropped the first set. I need to get a break of serve here so I can play with a lead, start to gain some confidence, start to you know play bigger on the forehand, take that backhand big down the line. When he's cruising, as he has been, he's as good as any player right there, right now on the ATP Tour. And again, Nick Kyrgios, even without the Wimbledon points, 21st in the points race. He'd be a top 10 player if you included those Wimbledon points. ELO ratings love him. He's sixth in 2022 ELO. He's 10th in hardcourt specific ELO. He's 10th in ELO ratings overall. I mean, again, if he's healthy, I don't know how we're going to leave him out of our top five conversation of contenders entering the 2022 US Open. But enough on Kyrgios. You know, again, I also don't think Daniil Medvedev played poorly. I think Kyrgios is a particularly well-suited opponent to beat a Daniil Medvedev because he goes down swinging. He goes down on his terms. He is comfortable playing the serve and volley and, you know, doesn't let Medvedev's court positioning neutralize his serve and take the rally back to neutral. Kyrgios also forced Medvedev to have to manufacture some offense. Kyrgios was willing to grind in his return games. And look, credit to Medvedev who hit 13 aces in this match and, you know, 31 winners against 24 unforced errors. But, Medvedev was 9 of 24 at the net, and there were times where he just forced himself forward to try to put Nick under pressure because Nick was being patient and withstanding all of the Medvedev mumbo-jumbo from the baseline, and that's always been something that's Danil's, and it's the most marginal of Achilles heel, but it is a bit of an Achilles heel. Yeah, he can create with his first serve, and it wins him free points, and that's how he makes life easy for himself. He'll mix in the serve and volley from time to time as well. But if you can match his physicality and you have some weapons to make your life easy for himself, and again, there's like five players who can match his physicality on a hard court, and it's a lot easier in two out of three sets than it is three out of five. But there are times when Daniil gets a little slap happy with that forehand or, again, will hit a drop shot and force his way forward even if the drop shot's atrocious. And it's just at times can be sloppy, and the best of the best can take advantage of it. And again, I guess this is just a backhanded way of actually complimented. Well, I guess it's our, I don't know if it's backhanded. It's just a way of complimenting Kyrgios. Kyrgios executed that well offensively that Medvedev's, I think he's fine 
at manufacturing offense for himself, but because he wasn't elite at it, Kyrgios made him pay today. And again, an impressive three-set victory for Nick Kyrgios, who now will face a fellow Aussie in Alex Demonauer. Actually, the first matchup in the career of Demonauer and Kyrgios. Demonauer today, an impressive 7-6-7-5 victory over Grigor Dimitrov. Was just good to see Demon get back in action and you know, get especially after he looked just so physically fit in Atlanta and then looked drained down the home stretch of his first round matchup against Yoshihito Nishioka in Washington. Of course, Nishioka goes on to the final, so that's a loss that's appreciated in value. You know, Team Hour's getting a little hot. Since re, you know, since the start of Eastbourne, the final warm-up event for Wimbledon, Demon Hour's gotten I mean, listen to this record. He's what six and two plus four is ten and two plus two is twelve and three. Twelve and three since the start in Eastbourne. Leave the math in. Super producer Daniel Westoff. See, I can count in my head. Uh, twelve and three since the start of Eastbourne. He's heating up at exactly the right time. I thought he served pretty well today against Dimitrov. And you look again overall at the stats for Demon. Won seventy six percent of his first serves. Fifteen winners against twenty three unforced errors. But he just made that match a track meet and forced Dimitrov in to just, again, become impatient. Dimitrov, 39 unforced errors on the day against just 17 winners. Demon will do that to you when he's locked in physically, as he will be against Kyrgios. He's going to make that match a track meet. Does Nick have enough juice left in his legs? Is he going to be willing, you know, again, to approach the match exactly as he did against Medvedev? Can he maintain that focus? He's done it since the start of the grass court season. But, man, that's a really fun contrast of styles between the two Aussies in the third round. For what it's worth, Kyrgios, 61.3% favorite, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract. With that said, those were two of the upsets on the day. The other most notable on the men's side had to be Tommy Paul's victory over Carlos Alcaraz. Tommy, a 6-7-7-6-6-3 win over the number two seed. I mean, Tommy was just exceptional throughout the course of this match. And, you know, Alcaraz breaks immediately out of the gates. Tommy gets it back, holds 4-2-1. After that, first set stayed fairly steady and on serve. And, you know, look, I thought, I thought, Tommy played a shaky tiebreaker. There's no doubt about that in my mind. In the first set, 7-4-2, Alcaraz. Tommy, I think, made one first serve in that first set breaker and a couple of unforced errors for him. But it was a momentary blink for Tommy. And, you know, again, credit to Alcaraz who came out swinging, hit two ridiculous passing shots in the opening game to break Tommy Paul of the second set and turning this, including this ridiculous on the run backhand down the line slap off of a TP overhead that was just special off of the racket of Alcaraz. But, you know, up 7-6-4-1, here came Tommy, who was just rock solid all match long. 41 winners against 32 unforced errors, 25 of 39 at the net. The way he covered that backhand volley on match point, because Alcaraz got a pretty good look at a forehand down the line pass, but Tommy so explosive with his split step, with his first set, perfectly executes the backhand cross-court volley, hit a ridiculous drop volley in his opening service game of uh, the first set for what it's worth, or opening return game of the first set, and just, again, showed off the athleticism, showed off all the things that make him special. The thing to me that was most impressive was how willing he was to dictate with his own forehand and how unafraid he was of the Carlos Alcaraz forehand because, and I said this on Twitter, he may not be the best mover, on the ATP Tour. But if you're talking best movers in the men's game, you better include Tommy Paul 
in that conversation. His ability to change directions on a moment, change directions on a moment's notice on a hard court. His ability to slide, you know, in and out of the corners. His ability to just get there in time and get his racket on that forehand in the outer alley to just extend the point that much further. It just added up over time and for Tommy will you know down a couple of break points in his opening service game of the third set he wills himself to that opening hole tracks down a couple of Carlos Alcaraz drop shots and because he was there with more time than Alcaraz anticipated Tommy would have Alcaraz was out of position Tommy was able to easy easily execute a couple of approach shots to secure the hold for himself you look for Tommy who was down a match point six seven in the second set breaker hits a big first serve that draws an Alcaraz return error the reason I'm bringing all of these different examples up is within this single match all of the pieces for Tommy Paul that he's flashed throughout the course of his career, the elite athleticism, the exceptional touch at the net, the ability to match stroke for stroke when he's locked in, just how solid he is on that backhand, when he wants to turn into his forehand, his ability to generate pace on that wing. He's always been able to do all of these things, but putting them together for the course of the match has been difficult for him at times. He just put it all together today against Carlos Alcaraz, and he said after the match, look, it's a little easier for me to get up for the big matches. How can you not get excited to play a top five player in the world? He's like, that 6.30 a.m. wake-up time is just a little bit easier to deal with. I mean, you look for Tommy now. He beat Sinner and Eastbourne. He beat Alcaraz here in Montreal. You know, he was able to make the fourth round of Wimbledon his first, second week at a major. And, you know, you look for him at the end of last season, was able to you know, qualify in both Cincinnati and Canada, make a round of 16 at Indian Wells. Tommy's just been a primetime performer. He's 43 and 26 over the course of the past year, winning 60% of his matches. He's now 27 and 19 overall on the season. But of course, you look at his last six events, Queens Club quarterfinal, Eastbourne quarterfinal, Wimbledon round of 16, Atlanta quarterfinal, First round loss to Nick Kyrgios in Washington, D.C. Kyrgios went on to win the title. No shame in that loss. Now, you know, round of 16 in Montreal as well. You look for Tommy Paul, who came into the week ranked number 34 in the live rankings. More impressively, he's 32nd in the points race this year. He should and probably, or he could and probably should be seated at the 2022 U.S. Open. Again, just he matched Alcaraz's physicality. That's nearly impossible to do. And credit to Alcaraz, who kept swinging. And, you know, Alcaraz was down 2-5-15-40 in the third set. Was down five match points, I believe, in that 2-5 service game. And was able to fight them all off and force Tommy to have to hold to close out the match. And look, again, for Carlos Alcaraz overall on the day, 36 winners against 36 unforced errors. You know, he was fine. He wasn't exceptional. He was fine. Today was a... a Dare I say a B minus B sort of performance that we've been wondering what Carlos Alcaraz has in him in those sorts of moments. And Alcaraz had a match point. He put himself in position up a set in 4-1, but he blinked for a moment. And again, much like the Medvedev loss, I don't hold it against, you know, I didn't hold that against Medvedev. I don't hold this loss against Carlos Alcaraz. Tommy was that good. Go watch the 2-5-15-40 match point. It's like a minute and a half, you know, 20-plus ball rally where Alcaraz is just constantly swinging away and playing to win and playing without any fear and without any hesitancy. 
And Tommy matched it, just stroke for stroke. And, you know, when Tommy had an opportunity on a short ball, he tried to turn into a forehand. He happened to miss it on that match point. But more frequently than on this match, Tommy made those balls. And again, for me more than anything else, this is just another indication of how freaking good Tommy Paul can be when he plays his best tennis. You look for him now 3-2 and two this season against top 10 opponents. He beat Zverev in Indian Wells. He beat Berrettini in Acapulco. Now he beats Alcaraz here uh, in Montreal. Tommy now 5-9 and nine overall against top 10 opponents. Four of those top 10 wins have come in the past year. Tommy Paul's coming. 25 years old, you would it would make sense that he's about to hit the prime of his career. And you look for Tommy now overall in his career at the ATP level. He's played 150 matches, 148 overall in his career. His match against Marin Cilic will be his 149th. He's 78 and 70 overall in tour level matches. He just knows the lay of the land. He's adjusted, again, the focus, the physicality you have to have point in, point out, the willingness to play on your terms, even if you do have this elite athleticism. You know, again, you have to be willing to play big, to make mistakes on your own terms, because the moment you get tentative, these guys at the top of the game are just too good and they'll crush you. And Tommy seems to have learned that lesson, again, was just exceptional today. He earned his three-set victory over Carlos Alcaraz. But again, with that said, Let's look now more big picture at the rest of our results on the men's side in Montreal. Again, a couple of other upsets on the day. Dan Evans just continues to own Andre Rublev, and Rublev was just lost against the slice serve of uh, the slice serve, excuse me, the slice backhand of Dan Evans. And whenever you can throw off speed at Andre Rublev, whenever you can get him out of rhythm, you know, out of the strike zone, force him to hit from an uncomfortable launch position. The errors can will pile up, and you look for Rublev overall on the day. Dan Evans, a 6-4, 6-4 victory. Rublev, uh, 22 winners against 28 unforced errors. You know, Dan Evans, 19 winners against just seven unforced errors, but two of those were double faults. Dan Evans hit five unforced errors from the ground. What does that tell you? That Andre Rublev hit himself into disadvantageous positions today. And for Rublev, it was two things. It was handling the backhand slice, a lot of errors off of that slice. Rublev was also uh, five of 19 behind his own second serve today. And credit to Dan Evans, who would play slice off of that return, who would take the ball early on the rise after throwing a couple of off-speed slices at Andre Rublev. Just kept throwing different looks at the number five seed and... Look, it's another disappointing loss for Rublev, who struggled with that same sort of off-speed, although albeit topspin, but off-speed looks in uncomfortable positions against Yoshihita Nishioka last week in Washington. And look, this continues to, again, be something we've seen now a couple of times for Andre Rublev against Dan Evans. You look at the career head-to-head between the two for what it's worth. Evans now 4-4 uh, four and four overall against Andre Rublev. He's won three of the last five, including... Uh, but they are three and three since the start of 2020. Interesting, but he's won three of the last five, three of the last four on hard courts. And yeah, the match that always sticks out to me right before the pandemic hit, I remember Dan Evans' 6-2-7-6 win over Rublev in Dubai. Again, it's it's for Andre Rublev, you know the speed you're going to get. You're going to get the four big forehands, and when he's landing that forehand, he's landing his first serves. He's just, you know, again, it's it's miserable to have to deal with, but, you know, Rublev 
when you can get that ball into his body or you can force him into the outer thirds, force him into that backhand corner where he, but not allow him to hit forehands out of that corner, he just is a different player. Again, the defensive skills still aren't quite where they need to be. And, you know, again, the patience when plan A isn't always clicking right at the start, Rublev gets frustrated and he wears that frustration on his sleeve. I think that's why he's such an appealing player to fans because you can just feel and see everything he's going through, which again, credit to him. I think you like that out of the majority of players, but just wasn't quite good enough today again uh, against Dan Evans, who made his life miserable. Big win for Evans, who sets up a match now against Taylor Fritz. Fritz, a come from behind, five seven six one six four victory over Francis Tiafo. He looked healthy. He was moving well, tracking down the ball. You know, again, it's two good victories for Taylor Fritz. Wins over Tiafo and Murray to kick off his Montreal campaign. Taylor Fritz, as of right now, number nine in the points race, nine in the points race. And let's assume Rafa doesn't play the year-end finals because he probably won't. I mean, again, Fritz is in the mix, U.S. Open, Paris, two events you feel like he should very much have success in on the horizon. Fritz is going to be a top 10 seat probably at the U.S. Open. And boy, is that a credit to the year that he has had. But again, kind of quickly going through the rest of the results, Yannick Sinner did not play well, but Credit to him. Again, it was a B, B-plus at best performance from him. The forehand wasn't clicking, just wasn't having much success beyond the fourth, fifth ball in the rally, but stayed steady, stayed patient, wait for Adrian Manorino to blink. He did at four all in the second set center, able to capitalize on that, then did finally find his form. Two six six four six two victory over the qualifying Frenchman. Yannick Sinner now a ridiculous 35-2. and two against players ranked outside the top 20 this season. It's just laughable how good the Italian has been. He has made that jump, folks, to the elite of the elite. Uh, quickly again, going through. Big win for Cam Norrie, one and two over Botic. Just physically, if you don't have a weapon, Norrie's going to work you because he's not going to beat himself. Impressive victory for Roberto Bautista. Agut was down an early break, but comes back 7-5-6-1 over Jensen Brooksby. Just kind of wore Brooksby down. Brooksby became impatient, tried to manufacture some offense, just wasn't quite comfortable doing it in set number two. Credit to RBA, who just, again, one of 11 players, top 25 in both hold and break percentage. He continues to cruise. Uh, speaking of cruising, Pablo Carreño Busta, massive win over Berrettini yesterday. 0-3 win. He's looked excellent so far in Montreal. Uh, 0-3 win over Runa here today. And then, you know, again, final wins. Marin Cilic, straight sets over Karen Hatchinov. I know these four courts are quicker. Chilich made the semifinals of Roland Garros. He still is capable of playing some awesome tennis, but that's just a match Karen Hatchinov has to win. And three and two, I mean, come on. That's just not going to cut it. Gael Monfils, impressive. Six and six win over Max Cressy. That looked exactly as you expected it to. A lot of big serves mixed in with some improvisational excellence from the Frenchman. And then, you know, last upset, Ramos Vinolas. I did not think these courts would suit him well. They have good wins. For ARV to kick off his campaign, uh, wins over GoFan, and then a 4-2 and two win today. He knocked off a somewhat helpless Diego Schwartzman who, again, we can have that conversation at the end of the year because whatever this season, it is what it is this year. But, you know, there's only 20 spots in the top 20, only 15 spots in the top 15. I know that's breaking math, breaking news for all of you listeners. But Schwartzman's occupied one of those top 15, top 20 spots for the past seven years. And I don't know if he's going to. 
moving forward because these young guys are all really good and you know the physicality used to be his calling card and now he's nearly 30 years old a lot of these 23 24 25 year olds can match that physicality now and they have a little bit more size a couple more weapons to work with I'm just saying especially on hard courts quicker courts never going to suit Diego Schwartzman's game they did not today in Montreal. But again, with all that said, a look at your third round matches. They're juicy, folks. You've got Kyrgios taking on Demon Hour. Ramos Vinolas taking on Hoopy Hercots. That's probably one you skip. Casparu uh, taking on RBA. Very fun. Cam Nori taking on Felix, a rematch of last week's three-set semifinal in Los Cabos. Cam Nori won that match. Lock me in for this one. Sinner versus Cranio Boost juicy. Uh, Tommy Paul taking on Chilich. Fritz taking on Dan Evans, and then Gael Monfils taking on the winner of Jack Draper and Stefano Tsitsipas. Action continuing to deliver in Montreal, and we will cover it all week. With that said, let's flip gears. Talk about the WTA action happening over in Toronto. Let's start with a three-set thriller that set our tone for the day. Coco Goff, an impressive 6-4, 6-7, 7-6 victory over Elena Rabakina. Goff served for the match at the end of the third set and certainly had match points in the second set as well. But look, Elena Rabakina, when she's hot, Again, just coming off of a Wimbledon championship, Elena Rabakina's best tennis. She's a member of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Officially, she's a Grand Slam champion. It's not even hypothetical anymore. She has full access to the country club. When she plays her best tennis, it can look elite. But that's where you got to credit Coco Goff for her performance today. And I just thought... For God, it was Medvedevian. I don't, you know, again, I was trying to build to it, going to try and make some statistical comparisons. It really comes down to the aesthetics of the game and the game style. A for Coco Goff, it starts with her first serve. I think all of us know that first serve, which can get up to 115, 120 miles per hour, it has the potential to be an elite first serve on the WTA Tour. And you look for Coco Goff right now amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour. Uh, It's interesting to note she's about 27th in hold percentage, but you look at her first serve win percentage, Coco Goff skies up the rankings. Uh, She's a top 15 win percentage. She's 15th, but top 15 in first serve win percentage on the WTA Tour, of course. You look for Coco Goff. While that first serve percentage can vacillate, she made 60% of them today against Elena Rabakin, and while she also tossed in 13 double faults throughout the course of the match, in particular, sometimes those double faults came at the biggest moments, is that she's able to win free points behind that first serve, able to use that first serve to set up easy plus one opportunities or, or easy serve and volley opportunities for herself, where even if that forehand grip can be a bit extreme because she hits the forehand so well, she just has that much more time to set up for her plus one forehand. And doesn't that sound awfully familiar to Daniil Medvedev when you think about both of these players again the defensive skills for Coco Goff who did just enough absorbing those first strikes of Elena Rabakina particularly in the tiebreaker just you know Rabakina didn't win a point in the third set breaker a third set breaker that ultimately goes 7-3 to Coco Goff and just again played some extraordinary defense hit two incredible passing shots for 3-all and 4-3 in that third set break uh, after she trailed 3-2. She doesn't drop a point the rest of the way. 
you know, again, it's the defensive skills, the ability to turn that defense, though, into offense, because obviously we know Coco Goff's a Grand Slam finalist, not only in singles, but in doubles as well. And she really is a comfortable volleyer, whether it's playing the swinging volley out of the air, whether it's using her first serve to serve in volley, whether it's just hitting a standard volley at the net. She's comfortable doing it as is Daniil Medvedev. They also both play a little bit flatter on that backhand wing, and yet both of them drive that backhand so well. Cross-court, down the line, they can play the drop shot, play some slice as well. You know, the extreme forehand grips get both of them in trouble at times, yet those forehands, when given time, can be equally effective. And then, of course, it's just the physicality. I mean, both of them are a nightmare to go up against because you know they're going to track down every extra ball. You know you're going to have to play your best, going to have to thoroughly beat them if you want to defeat them on the court. And look, Rabakana did not play her best today. She made only 46% of her first serves. And, you know, again, the unforced errors piled up just in waves. It felt like she would, you know, from the end of the second set through the start of the third set, she probably made four total unforced errors. And then, you know, from the middle of the third set until down 5-3 in the third, she probably made 14 unforced errors. Then she cleaned things up again, only for the unforced errors to pile. She just, she still runs hot and cold. And we saw how good, again, that best can be. But the floor, you know, because it can't, well, she can be a little power dependent. I still think Rebecca moves someone uh, extraordinarily well for someone that powerful. But it's just, you know, some of the defensive skills, slowing things down, finding that 75% ball. When Rabakina finds that 75% ball with consistency, she's just going to kill people. Because, again, the backhand, down the line, cross, how powerfully she hits it. When she steps up and takes a forehand early on the rise, uses her size to beat you to the spot. There's a lot of things Elena Rabakina can do on the court. And for God's sakes, at 23 years old, she's a Grand Slam champion. But, you know, again, the physicality, the patience, the variety of Coco Goff, it perplexed her. And it ultimately allowed Goff to win out. And again, Coco Goff is 18 years old. Elena Rabakina just turned 23 years old. These players are not the best they will be at at the peak of their careers. And yet they're both extraordinarily talented and we got to see the second round in Toronto. Are you kidding me? Again, just miraculous. But, you know, you look for Coco Goff now this season. It's been just a rock-solid year for her. 29-14 and 14 overall on the year. When you're winning two-thirds of your matches, you're going to continue to move up the rankings. And Goff right now, number 12 in the live rankings. But more pressingly, she's fourth right now in the WTA Tour Finals. If the WTA had a next-gen finals, Coco Goff would have three more years of eligibility. Or as I always like to say with Colette Lewis, we joke around about it, Coco Goff could go play the USTA Girls 18s Nationals in San Diego this week to try and qualify for a U.S. Open wildcard. Obviously, she doesn't need it. She's fourth in the points race. But she could go play the Nationals in San Diego. And yet she's also fourth in the points race. Perspective perspective, folks. I mean, again, Grand Slam finalist earlier this season. You look for her overall in the year against players ranked outside the top 50. She's 17-2, and 26-6 against players ranked outside the top 20. But again, let's contextualize those. She lost to Madison Keys in Australia. Everyone lost to Madison Keys in Australia. And by the points race, Keys is a top 20 player this year. 
She's lost twice to Simona Halep, who, along with Iga Svantec, is the only other player to rank top 10 in hold and break percentage. I don't think that's your typical outside the top 20 loss. She lost to Kasakina, who's currently number eight in the rankings. And she lost to Anisimova in three sets in Wimbledon. And Anisimova, another player, 15th in the points race, top 10 in all the ELO metrics. 26-6 and six against players ranked outside the top 20, but in reality, her only loss to a non-top 20 player is Wang Chung in the first round of the Australian Open, and that's really her only bad loss of the season. Now, if you're going to hold something against Goff, it's that she's only 3-8 and eight against the top 20 this year, and those wins against Bedosa in Doha, Kerber in Rome, Pliskova in Berlin, you know, they haven't come at the biggest stages, in the biggest moments. When she got Iga in the Roland Garros final, it was a one in three definitive win for Iga. But again, I think that had more to do with Iga than anything else. And, you know, a loss to Bedosa last week in San Jose after beating Osaka, a loss to Jabour in Berlin after beating Pliskova. Winning one signature match in a tournament, she's been able to do that. But following that up with the second signature victory. That's what we still want to see from Coco Goff. And guess what? At 18 years old, that's what you'd want to see from any 18-year-old. It's incredible that she's already getting that first signature win and beating the players that she's supposed to beat. But, you know, having the discipline, the wherewithal, the stamina to repeat that sort of result, I mean, it's going to need anyone to be at their absolute best. And at 18 years old, I think we can all agree, Coco Goff is nowhere near the best version of herself yet. She still can get that much better uh, throughout the course of her career, which is a scary thought for the rest of the tour because of how damn good she has already been. But I am fascinated by the Coco Goff arena Sabalenka matchup tomorrow. Goff 2-1 in her career against Sabalenka. Sabalenka, an impressive straight set victory. Boy, did she need an easy one, and she sort of got it today against Sarah Cerebez Tormo. I mean, you never know what you're going to get from an arena Sabalenka. This is obviously a massive opportunity for Goff, who just saw a fellow power tennis player in Elena Rabakina, so she'll sort of be ready for that plus-one onslaught that Sabalenka can bring towards you, uh, uh, put upon you, excuse me, but... Man, buckle up. That's a great matchup. I mean, again, you're looking across the board in the matchups we've got tomorrow in Canada. The round three matchups are all exceptional. By the way, I mentioned a little bit earlier, Bianca Andreescu in a third set versus Alize Cornet currently has match point up 5-3 in the third against Cornet. So it looks like Andreescu is going to go back-to-back impressive victories after her first round win over Daria Kasakina and you know, again, looking at today's results, all of them setting up juicy ones. I thought Belinda Bencic was always going to beat Serena. I just thought, again, you play Harmony Tan, you play Nuria Parizas Diaz, you're not seeing the sort of power tennis, the sort of weapons, the sort of aggression you're going to face as you play players further up in the rankings. And if you're talking aggression, you're talking Belinda Bencic, who's fourth right now in hold percentage amongst top 50 players, whose line drive tennis is the staple of her game. And Bencic, by the way, currently eighth in the points race. Not too shabby. She's been healthier probably this season uh, than any other prior year in the 25-year-old's career. And 
Look, she just too much pressure on Serena from the jump, connected on a couple of returns early when Serena was struggling with her first serve early in the match. But credit to Serena, who found her pace on serve in set number two and, you know, who was able to win 13 of 16 first serve points and, you know, only face two break points in the set, only broken one time. But that's all Belinda Bencic needed because, again, the elite plus one tennis, the line drive approaches, Bencic was able to hit and have Serena moving into the outer thirds of the court. Serena wasn't able to move like she was in 2019, 2018, certainly 2013, 2006, 1999. Of course, it's three decades later, so I don't think that should surprise anyone, but you know, Bencic's weapons were too much, and I think moving forward, obviously the emotion for Serena after the match, saying goodbye to the Toronto crowd and the love they showed her. If you didn't tear up, you're just not human because for what Serena Williams has meant to the game, it's just so incredible and so needed that everyone show her this sort of love. But, I mean, again, from a tennis perspective, now she's seen that sort of power tennis. She knows what she has to do, knows what she has to work on, has to be clicking on the first serve from the start of any match that she plays because, you know, again, in that first set, she was one of 10 behind second serve points and, you know, thankfully minimized those second serve points in set number two. But, you know, when she is forced to be on the move and be defensive, obviously that's never, you know, that's just not going to be advantageous for Serena at this stage of her career. But credit to Bencic, who that's a lot of pressure. You're playing against not only the greatest champion in women's tennis history, but you're playing against the entire crowd as well. And Bencic was able to execute accordingly. And now for Bencic, she'll take on Garbine Muguruza, who earns a much-needed 4-4 four four victory over Kaya Kanepi. You look for Muguruza overall now. She's 9-12 and in this 2022 season, yet somehow still finds herself at eighth in the current WTA rankings. Of course, end of last season, she won the year-end tour finals. She won a title in Chicago, round of 16 U.S. Open. All those points going to come off her record. She's got to get to work here. And certainly, again, Ben Shichur won one career head-to-head. That's going to be a fun one, uh, certainly in round number three. You look at some of the other matches. Iga Sviantek cruising. She's now won 15 straight matches at the 1,000 level in straight sets. That's a record. They, you know, formed these premier 1,000-level events in 2009. No player had won 15 straight matches in straight sets prior to what Iga Sviantek has done this season, a testament, again, to her excellence. And, I mean, look, Al Tom couldn't hurt her. And as such, Iga was just swinging away freely. And, I mean, again, you look for Iga Sviantek. It's just a joke. Uh, 23 consecutive matches now at the 1,000 level. Only Caroline Wozniacki and Serena Williams. Wozniacki in 2010 through 2011. Serena in 2013 have won more consecutive matches at the 1,000 level since 2009 against 23 consecutive. Now she takes on Beatrice Haddad Maya, who ends the run of Layla Fernandez. Good first comeback tournament for Fernandez. Uh, given how long she's been out with injury, but credit to Haddad Maya's 7-6-6-1 victory. The lefty just imposing her physicality on Fernandez. It'll be a fun matchup between her and Iga, certainly, uh, as they take on one another in the round of 16. As you look through the rest of the draw, Maria Sakari, pretty straightforward, straight set victory, excuse me, three-set victory for her over Sloane Stephens yesterday. You know, she just blinked at the end of that second set, but 
you know, imposed herself physically in set number three and, you know, minimized the unforced errors, maximized the first serve percentage. Fun contrast styles as she'll now take on Carolina Pliskova. Pliskova putting on a service performance du jour on the quick courts in Toronto. It's a surface that fits her best, so it makes sense, but one in one victory over Amanda Nisimova was awfully impressive, of course. Yeah, Chin Wen Jung knocking out Own Jabour, 6-1-2-1. Jabour was, you know, called the trainer, some back issues. She said she was ill during the match as well. Hopefully we get her healthy because obviously we all know how good she can be at her best. You also have now Jessica Pagula, straight set winner over Asia Muhammad, was down in early break of serve. But again, has any player on the WTA Tour been as consistent as Jessica Pagula week in, week out? Probably Kasatkina, and maybe that's it. I mean, other than Iga, of course, Pagula currently fifth in the points race, eighth in the WTA rankings, just ho humming into another round of 16. Well, she'll take on defending champion Camilla Georgie. Georgie's power too much for Elisa Mertens. The errors piling up for Mertens when she tried to play offense, 6 3 7 5. Georgie advances. How about Allie Risk? 7 5 in the third. She knocks out Yelena Ostapenko. Ostapenko uh, certainly had a million moments at chances, earns a bagel in set number two as well, but Risk kept swinging. She stayed aggressive, put that pressure on Ostapenko, didn't blink when Ostapenko went on her runs of excellence. Again, a very, very impressive performance from Risk, who will now have a massive opportunity on this fast surface, which suits her game so well. She'll take on Yulia Putenseva. Putenseva advancing 7-5-1 love when number four seed Paula Bedosa forced to withdraw. And just again, lingering over everything, if Shabur's not healthy, if Bedosa's not healthy, you know, Osaka out with injury as well. Other than Iga, who are your top five contenders to capture the 2022 U.S. Open ti- women's singles title? It's a hell of a question that we'll have to ponder, and that's why, you know, Toronto, Cincinnati really do matter on the women's side. It feels like if you come in hot, the opportunity is going to be there for you, and that's why, again, big Sabalenka of her to get the 4-3 and three win over Cerebez Tormo. Simona Halep, an impressive 4-2 and two victory over Shui Zhang. She's just beaten everyone she's supposed to beat this week. And then, how about Jill Teichman? We know when the lefty's good, Cincinnati finalist last year, she can be very good. A 4-4 four and four victory today. Annette Contabe just didn't have weapons to hurt her with. And credit to Teichman. That match was mostly on her terms. But with that said, again, that's Wednesday's action. North of the border, the 1,000-level play going to continue throughout the course of the next four days. We'll cover it all here at Cracked Rackets as we try to ensure you remain the most well-educated, best-informed fans in the business. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout-out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Also, a couple of other podcasts for you Cracked Rackets listeners to check out. We were joined by ATP number 201, Rinky Hijikata, over on the Cracked Interviews podcast if you want to hear from the rising ATP talent, former North Carolina All-American. Go check that show out. You can also check out our search For the next, Ben Shelton, who might be the next college tennis player on the men's or women's side to take the pro game by storm. John Parsons, Chris Hallioris, and I kick around some candidates as we look for that answer, of course. With all of that said, all that content available on CrackedRackets.com. With that in mind, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. 
that's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.